This is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I am so thrilled you're here. Happiness Solved is dedicated to giving you content that is empowering, motivational, inspirational, and of course, a dose of happiness. It's my way to give back to the world and share other people's stories. This thing called life can be challenging, and my guests share their amazing stories, wisdom, and life lessons that demonstrate anyone can choose happiness. You see, happiness is a journey, not a destination. I am Sandy Scarlatta, America's happiness coach, author of Happiness Solved. I'm also a retired U.S. national and international figure skating coach. I have a gold medal in ice dancing. I've been a certified life coach since 2004, and I've been inspiring others to shift their mindset and choose happiness for over 20 years. I am so excited to share that my next book is coming out soon. I am a co-author in the fastest growing personal development book series in the world with Jim Lutz and Jim Britt. The really cool thing is that the foreword was written by the one and only Les Brown, and for my copies, I'm on the cover with him. If you would like a free copy when it's available, email me at sandy at sandyscarlotta.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I am so grateful for you. Today's guest is Grant Lottering. Since the age of 12, Grant has had a passion for cycling and would eventually start racing as a professional at the age of 21. In 2013, Grant was racing in the World Cycling Championships when he crashed. Grant's accident was so severe that as he lay on the mountain road, he resigned himself to the reality that he would die. Yet he lived, and one year later, he competed in the same race and crossed the finish line. Since then, he has accomplished more amazing feats that makes this story even more remarkable. He is truly an example of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Grant, hello. How are you? It's so nice to to talk to you today all the way from the French Alps. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose I could have been in worse places. Hey, Sandy. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's wonderful. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was when you told me you were in the French Alps, I was thinking, I'm outside of Washington, D.C. We're getting oh, yes. ready to have a severe summer thunderstorm because it was about oh, yes. you know, close to 100 degrees today. And then as I sit at my desk working all day, I have to have my heater on because I'm so cold in air conditioning, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Sure. I know. So yeah. what's the weather like? What's the weather like in the French Alps this time of year? Well, at the moment, there's a severe heat wave throughout most of Europe, actually. Yeah, in the, in the Alps, I've been here since the 4th of July. I'm not here on vacation, unfortunately. I'm here to train. I'm doing another big um, impossible tour at the end of August. And um, at the moment, yeah, it's been averaging in the high 30s. Uh, what I said, make it Fahrenheit 100, about 100 Fahrenheit around there. Yeah. It, it's been insanely hot. Um, there's been fires everywhere, not here in the Alps, but in France. So it's quite severe. Um, but yeah, we also get our thunderstorms and 9.30 in the evening, it starts getting dark. <laughs> it's quite strange. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So you've got a really, really interesting story. So tell me, go all the way back, because I know mm. you started cycling at the age of 12. So go all the way back and, yeah. and walk us through 
you know, your story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start my story at the age of 12, should we? Mm. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's that's actually when my story kind of started too. So. Okay. Oh, is it? All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, yeah, uh, fortunately, my story didn't have the tra tragedy, tragedy that yours did. Um, but, you know, as a boy at school and that I was, um, I didn't really fit in very well. I was always different. You know, my brothers, my um, one brother's three years older than me, the other one 10. They, they were these real socialites. They were always out with their mates and friends at school, parties and sports and everything. And I was happy to be alone at home, doing my own thing, keeping myself busy. And I wasn't really good at school sports. Uh, you know, in South Africa, where I grew up, um, you know, we, we got a lot of ball sports and the national Sports are really popular, like rugby and cricket and that type of stuff. Sports that you don't really play much in the U.S. But I, I was absolutely terrible at it. Um, but I had to do the sport. Uh, it, it was almost compulsory at that age for, for good reason, you know, for development and that. But one day I went to a local bike race where all the professionals were racing and it just blew me away. You know, I, as a little boy, I saw all these... Um, all these pros with their fancy bikes and their muscular legs and racing past at warp speed and it just grabbed my attention. And uh, from that day on, I loved cycling and I started to ride my bike as a boy and, you know, just throughout more senior school up to towards my seventh, towards my 17th birthday. But then I was racing nationally. I was, really committed and it was my only sport uh, because I've, I found myself on a bicycle. It's a, it's an individual sport, obviously. And, um, you know, I found when I was playing in a team sport, I, I didn't like the fact that sometimes we'd win, sometimes we'd lose and I would have a good game and everybody else had a bad game or whatever the case may be. I prefer to do my own thing where it's up to me where it's up to my commitment and the effort I put in to bring the result. And I absolutely love that. So in terms of sport, that is that is where I, I fell in love with the sport of cycling. Fast forward to my last year in school. I was 18 and I had my best year. I was a junior still, but I ended up racing with the professionals. I got my national colours one of the youngest ever in the country to get it at that age. And um, I was soon spotted by some professional sponsors and that. And, you know, a couple of years later, I, I raced professionally and I spent um, a while racing in Belgium and Europe. Um, and then I went back to South Africa and um, I had achieved pretty much everything I wanted in terms of cycling. And I figured, you know, there's not really that much money in it. Back then, at least it wasn't. Um, and and I figured I'd rather just, you know, hang up the racing wheels, so to speak, and um, start working and, and studying and, and get a proper career going. <laughs> um, so that's how my love for cycling started, Sandy. Yeah. That's incredible. And I think it's interesting that you, you had said that, you know, you didn't feel you had the athletic ability for those other sports. And yet mm. cycling is something that requires 
not just athletic ability, but it's a huge mindset game as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's very taxing and, mentally. And mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. how did so so continue on with your story because I I know that in 2013 you had a real life altering moment mm. that hit you. Yeah, you know when when you take on a sport like cycling, it, it's it's very similar to ultra endurance running in that you you learn to love pain. You've, you've, you've got to love pain. If you hate pain, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and, um, you know, that sounds yeah. so, I don't know. I, I know right? it, it sounds macabre almost. But, <laughs> but hey, um, you know what? It makes you I, mentally I'm... strong. Eh? Yeah. Well, and it sure. totally does. And here's the thing, like whenever you start working out and, and, and this just made me think of like right now, I, I've, I'm obsessed with tennis yeah. and I got injured playing tennis and, <laughs> and I know that I need to do some cross training in order to be yeah. able to play the level of tennis that I want to play. So I've been hitting the gym and, and yeah. I am so sore today that it's painful. <laughs> I'm in pain. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a good pain. You know, you get good but pain. But it's a you get good bad. pain. It's a good pain. And, yeah. and but and so often, actually, yeah. no, I was just going to say that so often people give up because that they're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm sore. I don't want to keep doing this. But that's just, mm. you know, you keep it up and you get better and you get stronger. And, and yeah. it's just part of the whole mental, fit, the mental part yeah. of it, but the physical fitness part of it as well. Yeah, you know, just just mentioning that, you know, it's um, it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a very strong believer. My faith plays a massive role in my life, and being able to do what I do, um, and and you know, the mind is so powerful, the body, and the spirit. If if you can somehow combine those three, um, it's incredible what you can accomplish. And I, th I find a lot of people are physically strong but mentally weak. The minute they mm. face adversity, not physically, but but um, you know, like like um, a setback or something, they tend to crumble, and it becomes this mountain in front of them, and they struggle to see past it. They struggle to get beyond it, and so, you know, cycling for me helped me to a large extent to become mentally strong, to learn how to persevere, how to be resilient, how to be determined and not give up. Um, and, and I think that's why sport is so important in people's lives. You know, if, it doesn't matter what age you are, when you start doing a sport and you want to give it your best shot, it does have a very real and positive impact on your mental wellness and your mental strength to help you cope with other mm. stuff in life, you know. So fast forward to 2013, um, I... You know, for, for, for a number of years, I stopped racing, Sandy. I, I always loved the sport. Every year I would watch it on TV and I would start my bike, but not competitively. But in my 40s, I, I, I got that competitive bug again. I, I guess it's a bit of a midlife crisis thing I had going. I don't know. But <laughs> I, decided, <laughs> I decided I want to start racing, you know, in my veteran's age category. Um, you know, I'm in good shape. I'm, I was born to ride a bicycle. I mean, I was just gifted. With the ability, I've got the build, I'm scrawny, I'm light, I'm lean, I don't put on weight. So, you know, I've, I've got everything going for me in terms of riding a bike far and riding it fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I got into it. And then 
I, I managed to qualify for the World Championships. Uh, and, and in 2013, it, it was going to take place in Italy, in Trento. And like I said earlier, my as, as, as a boy, I always wanted to race in, in Europe. I stopped cycling and went back to South Africa. So my dream of riding in the Alps and riding those big mountains was never fulfilled. And then this opportunity came, which I qualified for. So, and I was the only South African to qualify, by the way, to, to race in the World Championships um, in 2013. Wow. Yeah, I was very proud of it. But so for a year, I trained hard. I mean, I was working. I, I was working in a bank, one of our big banks in, in the consulting and actuarial division. Um, so I had a good career going, but I trained so hard. I employed a coach. I employed a nutritionist. Um, I was working with a high-performance training center at one of our major universities. I was giving it everything for a whole year to prepare for this race in, in Italy. And I was super confident when I arrived there. It was wonderful to be in these big mountains in the Alps, to go and ride them first time in my life. Um, and it was so exciting, but at the same time, very apprehensive because I've thrown myself into something that I'm not familiar with. And I'm going to race in a very serious event with guys who live in the region. I don't. And that became my Achilles heel, I think. So the race itself um, was in a, in a city called Trento, right at the foot of the Italian Alps. Incredibly beautiful, historic city. And, you know, I was standing in my hotel room the night before the race. It was raining outside so hard. Um, and, and I was nervous. I thought, oh, Lord, please let us not race through these mountains when the roads are wet. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just not a good thing. That's, you know? <laughs> it's not a good thing at all. <laughs> not yeah. at all. Um, especially for a, almost like a rookie that hasn't raced in these mountains before. <laughs> but mm. anyway, so I woke up the next morning. The roads outside were still wet. It wasn't raining. But I could see these majestic mountains in front of me knowing for an hour or two's time. You're going to be riding through there. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I gave it everything to prepare. So just trust God for the rest, you know, and I set my prayer in front of my bed, got my kit on, number pinned on, and I rode off through the little cobbled streets into the Piazza Duma, the main square, um, where all the riders were gathering and the, the microphone was, or, or the MC was going on the mic, and there was a wonderful atmosphere and everything. So once the race started, we, we really just flew out of that city at a rate of knots. We, I've, I haven't started a race that fast in my life before. Um, and there's guys from all over the world there. And we went up the first mountain incredibly fast. I felt good. I was about probably about 20th from the front. And there was a small split happening up the hill, up the mountain. It was about a 12-kilometer mountain. So it was like a proper mountain we were racing up. And we went over the summit and down the other side. And I can still remember, Sandy, there were these road signs pointing at the gradient going down and signs of just caution, be careful. Um, attenzione, you know, that type of stuff. And we flew down there. And I was with about seven other guys. And I sat at the back because I just wanted to follow them down this mountain because I wasn't familiar with the roads. And we were going so fast and I was, whew, at times I thought, Grant, you, you're a bit, you got to back off. But I knew if we can just stay in touch with the front guys down at the bottom, there's a long valley road 
will be able to catch up and I'll be still in it with a good chance. So I just stuck it out and stayed on the wheel in front of me, like, like, you know, like Velcro, you know, <laughs> but we came through this one corner and I was doing over 40 miles an hour and I took the corner a little bit too wide and there was water on the side of the road. I went through the water and I didn't, I didn't fall, but I just kept going straight. The road turned left and I went straight. <laughs> oh, and, no. And, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those moments um, where everything just slows down in your mind and you can remember every, every like split second. Right. And there was, there was a big drainage ditch next to the road. I remember literally just lifting my bike and bouncing over it. And there was this massive rock embankment in front of me, a little bit of overgrowth, but I could see it's a big rock. And I knew I was going to eat this thing. And I was, there's no way I was going to stop. Um, and I remember just thinking, don't eat your head. And I just turned my body towards my left. So I took the brunt of the impact with my right shoulder and my back straight into the rock. And I bounced back, literally back into the road. And I lay in a fetal position on the side of the road, my legs in the road. As the guys were coming around that corner, there were many guys behind me. And I immediately started shouting and screaming from the pain. It was just indescribable. And I remember lying there and mm. I, I couldn't move. I could not move. Uh, but I could remember my head was half in the drainage ditch. And I remember just blood coming out of my mouth um, as I was screaming. Um, and as I lay there, a competitor crashed into me. Uh, he broke my femur, my right femur. Um, like a compound fracture of my right femur. Um, the miracle was he was a doctor. <laughs> Can you believe it? So, wow. <laughs> so he crashed, needless to say. He, I mean, he crashed over me, but he, he wasn't that badly hurt. I mean, he didn't eat a rock. He hit me. So he, he, he got off a lot better than me, <laughs> I guess. But he ended up staying by my side, you know, and, and one or two other guys ended up stopping as well to help. Um, and funny enough, I sat here the other day reading on Facebook from that day and all the comments. And he said I had a ruptured vein in my neck and in my right arm, and he had his hands on my neck and arm to stop the bleeding. And I was lying there, and, and um, I don't know how long it transpired, but I was just shouting all the time of the pain, and I was crying out, help, help, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I didn't know this, but I had fractured 22 bones. My... Um, you know, my right shoulder was completely crushed. Uh, my shoulder blade was, was shattered. Um, I fractured 12 ribs. Uh, my sternum was fractured. Uh, my lower spine, I had two compound fractures in my lower spine, my right hip, my femur. Oh my goodness, a lot of stuff. And, and both my lungs had punctured. My thorax had collapsed. So pretty quickly, I couldn't breathe anymore. And I, I, I realized there's a lot of faces around me. I remember I'm lying in a fetal position. I'm looking out of this one corner of my eye. A lot of chaos. And, and I didn't know this, but the medical team had arrived. And one of the surgeons from the ICU unit was with them. He started to work on me straight away. Um, in that time, though, I... You know, it's, it, it's difficult to explain it, but I, I experienced death firsthand. In that, yeah. 
yeah, as, as I lay there, um, you know, they had to defibrillate me twice to get my heart going again. But in that time, I, all pain left my body. I, I, I started losing my faculties. And it, it's quite funny in that moment, you know, it's so chaotic, but it's almost like your subconscious mind takes over. So in my mind, I was still aware of what was going on. And I realized, but I, I can't feel anything. And yet I see all these faces moving around above me and, you know, shouting and going on. And next thing, I couldn't hear anything either. It was deathly quiet. I couldn't feel anything, but I saw everything. And then it was like a curtain was drawn across my vision. And, and, and I found myself in, I don't know for how long. It could have been 10 minutes. It could have been 30 seconds. I have no idea. But where I was literally, it was like I was in a soundproof room. Uh, with total, total peace, total calm, no pain, no chaos, nothing. Quite remarkable. And, and I remember saying, Lord, take me, I'm dying. And it was just completely peaceful, completely peaceful. I didn't see anything, um, but, but I was, in a way, I was completely out of that situation. And... Yeah, the next afternoon, I came around in ICU, um, <laughs> which was which was just as traumatic because um, they, they, they had given me epidural. I was heavily sedated. I had a tube in my throat. I couldn't make a sound. I couldn't move. I thought I was paralyzed. So it, it, waking up in hospital was also very traumatic for me. But in a nutshell, that is what transpired in that accident that became the first day of my second life. Yeah, no kidding. And that's that's yeah, really it's... quite remarkable that, that you survived. Mm, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what I was thinking, you know, and, and I know that they there's still so much that we don't know about types of things like that, you know, when it happened and near-death experiences mm. and things like that because, yeah. you know, it, there's just so much we don't know. Right. However, it's really incredible how our bodies work and that you said the subconscious mind kind of took over mm. and you couldn't feel any more pain. I mean, how incredible mm. is that, right? And that, mm. that that maybe was one of the things that helped get you through it because you weren't yeah. aware yeah, but, of, of how awful it was, what, yeah. what you were going through. Yeah, and yet I was able to think clearly in that chaos. Right. You know? it, it's quite, That's yeah. incredible. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was mm. the first day of the, your second life. And yeah, sure. How, how, how difficult was the recovery? I understand you had like 11 surgeries. So how long did it take mm. for you to get back on the bike? Yeah, it was difficult. It was incredibly difficult. You know, just the combination of all those injuries. Um, I mean, you can imagine your sternum, your back, 12 ribs, your shoulder, uh, your right femur, your hip. I mean, <laughs> you cannot move. You literally cannot move. So oh, my, my, my eight days in ICU was absolutely horrendous. Uh, yeah, I was on morphine, all that stuff. But, you know, every day they'll come and they'll turn me on my good side to try and clean me and I would just scream in 
pain and we had to change the bedding. It was the worst ever. Um, but, you know, so many beautiful little things happened, um, which, which I think quite often people forget. You know, once you're in a storm, all you can think of is what's happening. But if you just try and look a bit beyond and look at what happened before it, what happened after it, people who played a part in that whole thing, quite often it's amazing how things were almost like orchestrated to get you through it. <laughs> in, in my case, the day before the race, I bumped into another South African guy who was there to race in a different age group, but he was there to race as well. Um, and he, we exchanged phone numbers. Now, now during my accident, he came across my crash because he started way behind me. So he came up, he came upon my crash. He recognized my clothing. He saw it was me lying there. He had a GoPro on his helmet, Sandy. He stopped. He was part of the few guys who stayed there until the, the, the helicopter flew me to ICU. And he filmed that whole set, that whole thing. Um, there's, there's footage on my on my homepage and on YouTube about my accident and how they trying to resuscitate me and all that. And when I look at that footage, I can literally see myself dying. But he filmed mm. all that, you know, he filmed all that. And afterwards, he got in touch with my brother because I had all my emergency contact info in my back pocket. He phoned my brother. My brother drove down from Holland where he still lives. So for that time in ICU, my brother was there with me, which helped a great deal. He managed to get a lot of admin stuff sorted and my hotel room and all my stuff, my bicycle. And, and he was able to speak a lot with the doctors. Remember, I've got a tube in my throat. I can't move. I can't speak. So I'm lying there wondering what the heck happened to me. And, um, you know, he would, he was almost like my voice for me. So he would speak to the doctors. And I remember the one doctor and I see you came up and he said to me, Grant, we call him your dead man walking. We don't know how he's about. But sadly to say, you're not going to ride a bike again. And that to me was a big shock. Um, because that's what I've done all my life. So, you know, just to get to your question, um, they, they they did three surgeries that first two days that I was there. They had to put a pin in my right femur, which I still have today, a, a, um, another pin in my femur neck, which I still have today, and they had to put a pin into my shoulder. Um, so I was eight days in ICU, then I went to high care, and... After 21 days, I was flown back to South Africa with medical assistance. And an ambulance took me home from our, our airport in Johannesburg back to my home. And I spent four months at home recovering. In that time, while I was in hospital, it's, it, it's maybe important I mention this um, without laboring too much around this, but the surgeon who saved my life on the road came to see me in hospital. And he said to me, you survived death. Um, I've never told a patient that before. He said, there's a reason you're alive. You must, it's up to you what you do with your life. And I'll never yeah. forget that. And that night yeah. I wrote, that night I wrote in a little notebook, I'm going to come back and finish this race next year. <laughs> One year later, oh, I don't wow. know how, but I'm going to do it. Just, just because they told me I can't really. No reason. <laughs> Right, and that's right. what I worked towards. Yeah, that's what I worked towards. So that first five months was incredibly hard for me. Yes, I was at home, but I went through five surgeries at home on my shoulder just to be able to use my arm. 
Um, I went through so many rehab sessions just because I knew one February 2014 I would have to start riding my bicycle. And yet everybody said to me, you're not going to be able to do it. Even my doctors, they said to me, Grant, you're just being irresponsible. It's not going to happen. Your arm is just, you, I, I had what they call a floating shoulder. So everything was detached. That attaches my shoulder to the body, my ligaments, um, everything, you know. So um, to think you would recover in such a short period of time. But you know what? I had a vision. I had serious determination. And I had faith and I had a plan and I worked my plan and I wanted everyone to fit in with my timeline. I went three times a week for rehab, not as well as I could. So it was incredibly difficult, but yeah, um, one February I started riding and 20 July, 2014, well, less than 12 months from accident, I was back on the start line and I finished the race. Wow. That is <laughs> so, yeah, unbelievable. It was, it was my biggest victory. Yeah, mentally, mentally, it was terrifying, but you know, it was my biggest victory ever. Just standing there at the finish, knowing a year ago you died, and they said you cannot do this, and here you are, Grant, because you believed, because you refused to let other people put their limits on you, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Now, can we just put this into some context? Yes. How old are you? Yeah. How old were you when you in the when you were in the accident? I was forty five. Okay, see that right there is remarkable. Just because <laughs> you know, the older we get, right, the harder yeah, it yeah. is to come back from That's injuries. True. That's true, and yeah. and all of that. So yeah. that just it adds a whole nother layer, mm, you know. But your yeah. body does have it. It regardless of of what it went through and all of the injuries. You still had the muscle memory and you still had, you know, that mindset that helped you yeah. get through the training, the recovery, and ultimately that finish line a year later. That's just remarkable. I yeah. think that's one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, yes, I've had 12 surgeries since then. Um, I've had eight on my right shoulder, two on my left shoulder. I'm still... You know, I'm, I'm so fortunate that the biokineticists and physios I work with in South Africa, I, once a week here in the Alps, I, I do a Zoom rehab session with them because my hips keep going out of alignment and there's stuff I've got to work on because I train incredibly hard. So I'm constantly working on my body. I'm constantly living with the consequences of that accident physically, you know. So, but I, I think what really helps me, Sandy, and we touched on it earlier is the fact that I'm mentally so strong, I've learned how to use my mental strength because I believe the body listens. The body is subjective. The brain is subjective. It listens to the mind. If the mind is strong, the body will respond, you know? That's, That's why, right. I, yeah, I firmly believe that. Um, if I, and, and, you know, that accident helped me to become strong. It helped me to become mentally um, so determined. Well, I think so. you give the, the, the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You take that to a whole nother level. I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So it, wow. it's, it's, you know, it's been a remarkable journey. If, if you know, if, if we had time and I, and I could just tell you all the things that's happened and that sure. I've experienced, I've packed more into the past eight years of my life than I have in the previous 45 and, 
it's just because every day I wake up and I'm just, thank you, God, that I'm alive. And thank you for this gift of being physically able to do what I'm doing. And just just a life of gratitude, you know. I think if people, if people, no matter what you've been through, if people can just understand that we are here for a short period of time and there's no reason for us not to live a life of gratitude. There's always someone worse off than what we are. Always. You know, and so I'm, I, I try and apply that in my life every day and, and just live my life the best way that I can um, and to be as relevant as possible and to to make a difference with what I have at the moment um, in other people's lives and children's lives. Yeah, it's so true. It is so true. Mm. And uh Wow. So since then, you have been taking your story now to over 11 countries and 40 million mm -hmm. people. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. That's, that's incredible in and amongst itself, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, that, um, that first year of my accident, Sandy, I was just focused on getting better, going to finish the race. I mean, I still had my career and I, I, I still figured I'll work until 60 and then I'll, you know, retire or whatever. But soon after I came back from Europe, when I finished the race, um, I had my GoPro with me and we had a little video produced and it just went viral. And um, I ended up on television. I ended up in magazines, everything. How did this guy do this? This astounding recovery. My surgeon couldn't believe it when I said to him, hey, I'm back. I just finished the race and he thought I was mad <laughs> and um, no one, no one could believe that I actually managed to do it. And to this day, I still actually don't know how the heck I did it, but I did, you know, and so much happened after that. And soon I found myself getting requests from all over the place. Come and tell us how you did it. Come and speak to our management team. Come and speak to our staff. Come and speak to our sales team. Come and speak here at our church and tell people what you can do if you have faith and you know, all this stuff. And um, at the same time, I'm trying to continue working, but I ended up using up all my leave every year, just traveling all over the world, sharing my story. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and but but pretty early on, I I decided, you know, Lord, you let me go through this for a reason. It it didn't just happen randomly. So. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I want to do, I want to do this professionally. I, want, I don't want to raise a few thousand dollars. I want hundreds of thousands. I want to raise money through corporates. I want to, I want to do this professionally. So I employed a PR agent. I employed a media manager. I went the whole hog and we, we did a whole branding exercise and I started planning these tours every year, what I call the impossible tour. And extreme rise of doing thousand kilometers, uh, six, 700 miles plus through the Alps without stopping, without sleeping, all that stuff. But I wanted to do it professionally. And that changed everything for me, you know, because I, I, I had a plan and I wanted to reach as many people as I could, not just through the media, through television, but, but also on stage. Because yes, it's an opportunity for me to to earn income, but it's also an opportunity for me to share with people what an ordinary guy has overcome and what an ordinary guy can do and that others can do the same. 
And so I, I had a real business plan around it and, and it just started to grow from there. So through my media manager, through my sponsors like Mercedes-Benz, now UHSM in, in the US, um, you know, it, it it's created a platform where just for two or three days nonstop and raising money for children has grown into something that inspires millions of people on in different media, different platforms. Um, and it, it's just continuing. The, the story is far from over. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's <laughs> far from over. incredibly blessed. <laughs> you really, I'm really incredibly are. blessed, you know. You really, really are. Yeah. Very much. Oh, my gosh. But it's been difficult. It's, it's, it's not been an easy journey. I gave up my career in 2016. Made a lot of sacrifices. It's not, a, it, it's not an easy journey, I must be honest. Well, and you're continuing to train. And that's yeah. difficult yeah. on many other levels as well. So yeah. it's, it's really it, incredible. So. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the thing. When you love what you're doing, you know, it's, yeah. it's a passion. It becomes, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a J-O-B. It's a, it's a passion. That's correct. That's awesome. Well, mm. before, we, before we go, and when we do hang up, I meant to tell you when, when we're finished recording, do not hang up so I can chat okay. with you after this. Sure. But um, what is there anything that you want to share with the audience that you haven't said thus far that, that's you know, some sort of golden nugget that they can hold on to and, and start mm. to use in their daily life every day? Yeah, there is. Uh, I, you know, for me, I, I see so many people go through difficult times. Um, a lot of people never get past it. So, you know, when life takes a turn for the worst, it, it's up to you. You have to make a decision. You either do something with it or it's going to do something with you. And for me, it's, it's, um, it's one thing to have a goal or want to accomplish something, but when you attach a purpose to it, it makes it so much easier. So, like, I said earlier, we all have there's always someone worse off than we are. We all have it in us to make a difference with people around us. So my golden nugget would, would be, and, 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 and I say it a lot, spoken at schools as well to young people, be less inward focused, be less, be less focused about me, myself and I, and what has happened to me, and what am I going to do, and how am I going to deal with this, and become more outward focused. Focus on people around you, focus on your, your family, friends. Um, not just yourself, you know, and yeah. it would be what I would like to leave with your audience is to become more outward focused. Even, you know, I mean, I started with nothing and, and here I am and it's just incredible. So, yeah, and it's incredibly fulfilling as well. Yes. Well, to live that way. It sure is. And I thank you so much for what you're doing and for your, your, inspirational story because it really is one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard. So thank you thank so you. much for joining us today. Yeah, no, next year you can read and you can get more detail. There you go, <laughs> so, right? I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sounds good, Grant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. That was by far 
the most inspirational story I have ever heard. Um, and just the, the sheer amount of uh, resilience that he has demonstrated over the last few years is, is absolutely remarkable. So I hope you take his words to heart and apply that to your own life. So thank you so much for listening today. As always, I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy and that your lives are filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Take care, everyone.